Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. I've been chewing on a theme for quite some time. I love to preach at Christmas time, and I haven't gotten a chance to do that as much this year as I usually do. Uh, but I, the Christmas story is just such a, a wonderful picture that lends itself to teaching on some of the things that are very dear and core values of this house. Uh, and, and namely, revival, God invading human history, God stepping in and altering human history. Uh, we are a church of prayer, and that's what we're praying for, that God will enter into human history and alter the course of our nation and the nations of the earth. And so uh, the Christmas story is so good, it lends itself to that so well. Uh, so I just love to preach on the Christmas story. Someone said to me last week, they, they uh, pastored, and they said, man, I always hated to preach at Christmas because you, you always had to figure out, you know, how, can, how many times can you tell this story? Uh, but there's so much in it. If we just step back and, and look at it, there's so many treasures in the Christmas story for you and I. So I want to look at a theme this morning uh, that perhaps we will uh, elaborate on at a later date. It really goes back, uh, ties in some other themes we've looked at in the last number of months. So let, uh, let, let's jump into it here. If you've listened to me preach any time at all, if you think about it, you can discern a bias. There is a certain thing that I will take a run at from many different angles, and that is this, that there is a distinct uh, difference between God's responsibilities and man's responsibilities. There is the God end, the divine side of revival, and there is the human side of revival. There is the God side of salvation and the human side of salvation. And even as I say that, some of you, because of your bias and discerning the difference between those two, a little antenna goes up when I say there's a human side to salvation. And there's something within you that says, wait a minute, you're getting into works. But the fact is, there is a human side to our relationship with God. And it's important that we make the distinction, and it's important that we discern from Scripture what is God's responsibility and what is our responsibility. Because the fact is, I can't do anything about God's responsibility. I'm not God. Aren't you glad? Hallelujah. Just felt the anointing come in the room. There's... I'm not God, I can't do anything about his responsibility. I don't need to worry about his responsibility. God is really responsible about his responsibility. He's very faithful. I can't do God's job. The fact remains, God won't do my job. There is a human side to our walk with God. There is a human side to revival. And if you listen to me over any amount of time, you'll begin to discern a little bit of bias in my preaching that I often will hammer on the human side. Because the fact remains that I can't do anything about God's end, I can do something about my end. That's where my responsibility lies. And when I stand before God at the end of the age, I'm not gonna answer for what he did or did not do. I will answer for what I did or did not do. So I want to clearly understand from Scripture, what is my role? I said this sometime in the last few weeks. 
But I think it's very, very important for us to discern a couple of things. Number one, we need to answer the question from the scriptures, not from, not from some theology book, not from what we've been taught, but what does the word say directly about these questions? Number one, are there certain things that I can do to attract God? Are there things that I can do that maybe even use the word entice God to come? Now I know that would make some of you uncomfortable theologically to use that terminology, but are there things that I can do to attract heaven's activity? Number two, are there things I can do to cooperate with God's activity once he arrives? That when God begins to move, are there things I can do to cooperate as he operates? Or are we simply spectators of divine activity, waiting down here, waiting for God's, the mysterious moving of God, that God is arbitrary, that we can't really know his ways, and that we just wait, hoping that he'll come, and when he does, then we just watch as he, as he works. Or are there things we can do to cooperate as he operates? Now, if you've been here around at any time at all, you already know where I stand on these questions. And number three, are there things that I can do to cultivate a culture? Notice those two words, cultivate and culture. They go hand in hand. They, they share the same root word, cult, which means worship or value system. Are there values that I can cultivate in the environment, creating a shared culture that can make the move of God or the operation or the activity of heaven sustainable? Can I attract God? Can I cooperate with him? And can we do certain things that a cause, once God comes, that he will stay? Or is the activity of heaven arbitrary? Is it unknowable? Is it just a mystery that we can never know and that we just hope that God will show up in revival and when he does, we're surprised and we just watch as he works and then when his spirit lifts, we just realize that, well, God sovereignly did what he did and we hope to live to see another move of God. And there are theological schools of thought that would adhere to those last few statements. I don't adhere to that theological school of thought. I believe there are things that we can do to attract heaven. And the Christmas story alludes to that very thing. Let me read you a little verse here. Uh, matter of fact, go ahead and turn there. Luke, Luke chapter 1. Let's just go ahead and read some of the passage. We won't just read that one verse. Luke chapter 1. It has a lot of verses, over 70 verses. Let's look at, uh, look at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, just, just pause here. We don't have time to get into this, and, and I, I'm not going to get to preach another Christmas message except for a few minutes at the end of our, our service next week. So I just want to point something out for you to think about. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, before God ever instilled his seed in Mary, the young virgin, he visited an elderly woman named Elizabeth. Both had a miracle in opening their womb. But God visited the elderly generation first. 
and the elderly generation was going to carry that which would prepare the way for what the younger generation would carry. John the baptizer was known, he was prophesied about in the book of Isaiah that he would prepare the way for the Lord. And it's a template, it's a lesson for you and I that as we grow older, what we carry will pave the way for what the younger generation carries. And we need one another. There is a generational partnership. And when Mary got pregnant, she hightailed it immediately to the elderly woman who was with child. And so young people, when God imparts something to you, you get around someone older that's carrying something significant as well. She went to be mentored by an elderly woman that was carrying a miracle birth of her own. And there's a whole lot in that passage. That'll preach. Not this morning, but it'll preach. Okay? So look at this. In, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. It's interesting how it's worded. It's like it's going through the layers of the cosmos. Sent from heaven to earth to Nazareth, to a town called Galilee, to a virgin, just narrowing down where this angel was going, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Verse 28, and this is what we want to look at this morning. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So what we want to look at this morning is what does it mean to be highly favored of the Lord? There are some people who carry more favor than others. So what we want to look at this morning is what's the deal with that? Because if we can get the inside out of that, we can position ourselves to be highly favored. I don't know about you, but when I read that stuff, I get jealous. Man, I, wanna, I want to be highly favored of the Lord. There's external things that come with that, and that's fine. But I want the internal prize. I want, I want when God looks across the earth, I want his favor to rest on me. I want him to say, there's one that I highly favor. Let me put it this way. I want to be of the tribe of the favorites. I want that to be my tribal affiliation. There are people that carry greater favor than others. It's an amazing thing. And I hope that stirs your hunger this morning because God is not, Scripture is very clear, God is not a respecter of persons. So it's not that he arbitrarily says, I'm going to favor one over the other. There are reasons for the favor. It wasn't some arbitrary decision in the divine heart. God is not a respecter of persons, but he is a respecter of heart attitude. And God is looking for those upon whom his favor can rest. And God puts his favor on us for a purpose. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I ask that you would enlighten our minds Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just take all the, the thoughts that you and I have been discussing and Lord, bring them to a landing here this morning. 
Lord, I'm asking that they would strike our hearts and they would start a fire. Lord, that they would, they would uh, provoke a hunger. And Lord, that they would provoke faith and hope. And we would, each one of us, see that we are candidates to be highly favored. Now, Lord, do your thing. Lord, do your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's, the, the angel says to her, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. In verse 29, it says, Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. What an amazing thing. This young girl is, an angel shows up and tells her she's highly favored, and she didn't even realize it. You can be highly favored with God and not even be aware of it. This phrase, this idea of the favor of God is not a new one that, that just pops out in this, this passage. This, there's history in Scripture to this favor. Matter of fact, you see men throughout Scripture leveraging their favor with God in intercession. It's one of the primary tools or even weapons that we have as believers that we can wield in intercession, that we can wield in spiritual warfare. Often we'll see this idea of someone being favored with God arising in a time of judgment. And this is where it really becomes relevant for you and I right now. That in a time of God's discipline and judgment in a nation, you'll see men step forward and they'll, they'll leverage their personal favor with God to save a nation. We see that with Noah. It does, Noah doesn't leverage it in prayer, but it does say this explicitly. And the context is God was very displeased with how things had gone with humanity. So much so that it said God, was, God repented. He was, he was sorry that he had made man. And he decided, I'm going to start over. And then it has this little short phrase, but Noah found favor with God. That it, over the whole human race, that God's ready to wash his hands of men, he found one man that he could work with. And he, it says, Noah found favor with God. So God went and engaged Mo Noah in a conversation, had him build an ark so that he could preserve the human race through Noah's lineage, and God saved humanity. But what God needed was somebody that had found favor with him. We see it next with Abraham. Uh, some of you will remember Pastor Laura's great message on serving, I don't know how, how she said it, I wasn't here, but I did get to hear it. Uh, she talked about how when Abraham served the Lord a meal, and he said to the Lord, as the Lord is passing by, catch this, he said, if I have found favor with you, don't keep on passing, don't pass by, don't just move through my camp and, and go on, but stay a while. He was appealing to the favor he had garnered with the Lord to cause the Lord not to just pass by, but to stay. It goes to our three questions we were talking about. Are there things that I can do to entice heaven? And I'm telling you, there are. There are things that we can do to attract heaven's activity. And let me, let me just pause there for a moment because there is modern American theology that deals with one facet of grace so thoroughly that it has caused us to ignore the other facets of grace. And so when we think of grace, we think of it as what? Unmerited favor. 
But the fact is, when Scripture talks about the favor of God, it's not talking about it as an unmerited thing. Many times in Scripture, I'm, let, let me pause. I, I won't say it with that wide a brush. It may be that there are times it's, there is unmerited, but I'm telling you, there's a lot of times that favor shows up, and it's merited. God, God promises his favor to those who will walk uprightly. He doesn't say, I just give my favor out to anybody. It's to those who walk uprightly, I will grant my favor. To those who obey, I will grant my favor. So there are certain heart postures that we can take that can cause the favor of God to come upon us. And furthermore, there are degrees of favor. Mary was greatly favored, implying that some people have less favor than others. You think, well, pastor, I think you're reaching with that. Okay, let me give you another one. Jesus grew in favor with both God and man. I don't even know what to do with that one. I can understand Jesus growing in favor with man, but the Son of God to grow in favor with God? I don't even understand that other than to believe it. That Jesus, God in the flesh, actually grew in favor with his father while he walked in the flesh. You can grow in levels of favor. And so you may have the favor of the Lord upon you, but I'm telling you there's more to get. God longs to bestow his favor on people. So what is this idea? What is favor? Well, in this passage, it's the, the Greek word is, uh, uh, let, me, let me, I don't know if I'm gonna remember how to even pronounce it. Uh, well, here, let me see. I think I can pull up my little Greek dictionary and it'll say it. Maybe I can even say it in my mic. Yeah, here it is. Listen to that. Harito. You hear that? Harito. That's how he said, Harito. The, it looks like C-H-R-I-T-O-O, the root word of which is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, which of course many of you know is the word we translate grace. So favored has the, it comes from the root word of grace. It has the idea of grace being upon us. When it's favor with man, Jesus grew in favor with God and man. When the, when the favor of God is on you, it's the grace of God upon you to make people attracted to you, to make them want to partner with you. Let me say it again. It's the grace of God on you to attract people to you, to make them want to partner with you. That's the, that's, <laughs> that is favor. That's the favor of God upon you with man. But there's a, a dimension of favor that attracts God to us. Now, we understand that it takes God to love God. It takes God to live for God. It's the grace upon us even that we would even have a desire for God, but it's very clear in scripture as well that we must respond to the grace of God. We can resist the grace of God or we can respond to the grace of God. And your response to God's grace will increase the favor upon your life or diminish the grace of God upon your life. 
And one of the ways in which we respond to the grace of God is by obedience, by obeying him. By, uh, another way is that we cultivate hunger. If the, if the favor of God is the grace of God, another criteria we see very clearly from Scripture is God gives grace to the humble. So humility attracts the grace of God. It attracts the favor of God. God gives grace to the humble, but it says he resists the proud. I'm going to tell you, if God resists you, you be resisted. I may try to resist you, and you can get around me, but if God resists you, you're resisted. And so the, God will give grace to the humble. So there are certain things that we can do to posture our heart, and the favor of God will come upon our life. So much so that with, with the favor of God, there is Another word we another way we use that term gives us insight into what favor means. I have favor on my life and it causes people to do me a favor. There there is favor from heaven that causes you to stand out before God. And when the angel came there was a reason that God had chosen her he he placed upon her great favor and used her to bring Christ to the world and there are things that you and I can do to posture our heart to attract God's activity and to enable him to use us now this this term favor we see uh, we talked about how Abraham he said to the Lord the Lord shows up with the angels and he asks them over for dinner. It's, a, it's a, what theologians call a theophany, a, a pre-incarnate expression of God before Jesus became flesh. And he says, if I have found favor with you, come, and he entreats him to stay. What a powerful passage. Pastor Laura preached on it some months back. Go look back on the podcast. There were some real nuggets to pull out of there on how we can cause the Lord to come. Then we see, after Abraham, we see with Moses. And Moses is praying for a nation. And what he says is this. He said, Lord, if I have found favor with you, please stay your hand. So Moses found favor personally and then leveraged it corporately. He presented himself before God and he said, God, will you, will you interact with the nation based upon your relationship with me? It's an amazing thing. And matter of fact, Abraham also did that not just to get God to stay when he when he came in physical form by his tent, but when Sodom and Gomorrah was coming under judgment, Abraham says to the Lord, he says, if I have found favor with you, would you listen a little further? Would you spare this city for 40 people? Would you spare it for 30 people? And he's leveraging his personal favor with God. Now you and I don't, at least I don't, I don't tend to think of God interacting with people in that way. 
But it's the same principle. We've talked about this many times. Psalm 132. Solomon wrote this psalm. I'm convinced it was Solomon because some of the things that Solomon says in that passage is reiterated by Solomon at the dedication of the temple. And he he opens it with this. O Lord, remember David and the sufferings he endured. He's saying, God, remember my dead daddy. And remember the walk he had with you and the price he paid in his relationship with you and the price he paid, the suffering he endured to build you a temple that he he laid things aside. Lord, he had it in his heart. He, He wanted to build a resting place for you. Lord, I want you to remember the heart of my dad and the price he paid. And Solomon is leveraging David's heart Even though David is now dead, he's leveraging it to move the heart of God. It's the same principle. Abraham did that with God. Moses did that with God. Solomon did it with David's relationship. I'm telling you that there are things you can do that move the heart of God. Are you you say, well, pastor, are you saying this is by works and that we can earn it? No. But I am saying that the initial grace of God that reaches you, if you will respond to it, there will be an increase of grace. But if you resist the grace of God, you can lose what you have. God wants to draw us in and he wants to to put his favor on our life. There's a number of interesting verses here. Let Let me read you just a couple of verses on the grace of God. I mean, on the the favor of God. Here we have, uh, again, Genesis 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And he's juxtaposing it over against all the rest of humanity. God said, I'm done. But one man found favor in the the eyes of the Lord. Uh, Genesis 18 Abraham, oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Boy, there's a good prayer right there. Posture your heart to find favor and leverage it to get God to drop in. Let me read you a couple out of the Proverbs. There's some rich, rich passages out of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter three says, hide my teaching so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God. Get wisdom, because with wisdom comes favor from God and with, with God and man. That if you'll apply, apply wisdom, God's favor will come upon you. Uh, here's another one, 835, but whoever finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. So there's favor that you can find with God. That's a phrase that's used again and again in the Old Testament. And so and so found favor. So and so found favor. Doesn't that beg the question, how do I do that? I want to find favor with God. I want to be a man that when he looks across the crowd, he looks and said, there's one that's highly favored. God invites us into that. It's a response to his grace where we apply his word, where we find wisdom and apply that wisdom, where we walk in humility and the fear of the Lord. He says, if you find favor, you'll have good success. Proverbs verse, chapter three again. 
says, towards the scorner, God is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Do you see how God is interacting with man based on the posture of their heart? See, favor, again, is the grace of God. It comes from the same root word. But if we're not careful, we buy into this American idea of grace that although true is very limited, and what the enemy loves to do is give you a truth, give you a part of the truth, back it up with scripture, and then pull it out of the context in which it is true, and drop it into a new context where it's no longer true, and argue scripture to back up this untruth. And we end up limiting ourselves in our understanding of this rich theme in Scripture. We've talked about this before. Often I'll share this on Thanksgiving. I didn't this year, so I'll share it now. The, the, The idea of grace in the New Testament, the Greek word charis, C H A R I S, charis, we get from that's where we get charismatic. The grace gifts, I like Dave Wilkerson used to say that. He didn't like that term. It sounded like a, a breathing condition, charismatic. But uh, it's, it's really the, the grace gifts. It's um, the, you know, operating in grace, charismatic. Uh, charis, that word had an evolution in the Greek language. The first idea was that it was just, it, it was to cause delight. We still use it that way when we say, we'll see maybe a figure skater or someone dancing and they'll say, oh, she danced with such grace. That was the idea originally. It just caused delight in someone's heart and, and they called that grace. Grace bubbled up in their heart as they observed something. It caused delight. So that was the idea. Over time, it also had the idea of this... Uh, this drawing power, this even compassion or pity. And so there was a drawing power behind grace. And we use it in that way as well. We, when we talk about somebody being graceful, it draws us in. There's something about that. And there's also the grace of God that draws us to God, but also draws God to us. When we talk about favor, the favor with God, it has this idea of God being drawn to us because of our heart posture. Over time, a good illustration of the evolution of the word would be uh, if there was a wealthy individual that saw a, a, a homeless person at the end of their lane begging for bread, if they looked down there and they, they felt pity, they felt compassion for them, that was, that was grace, it was charis. And initially that was as much as it meant, but over time it, it evolved into the concrete provision that someone would get up from their living room, walk down to the end of the lane and give them some hot bread. The bread itself was known as grace. And we use it in that way today. So God, when God gives us grace, we say it's by grace we're saved. It's by grace that we, uh, you know, we walk with God. Paul said, even his call, his apostolic call, he says in Ephesians 3, surely you have heard of the grace of God given unto me to be an apostle. So what made Paul an apostle? Grace. This substance from heaven that God put upon him. Uh, Paul uses the power of God and the grace of God synonymously in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So grace is the power of God upon us that does certain things. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it made Paul an apostle. I mean, in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, it made Paul an apostle. For you and I, it saved us. But grace is not just to save us. Grace is the substance of the Christian life. Everything we do is by grace. But we need to understand that it's not just a gift given. It is a force that is cooperated with. And if we don't understand that, then we sit idly by wishing God would operate when there are things that we must do to cooperate. And so over time, it meant not only somebody looking down affectionately and thinking, oh, that poor guy at the end of my, my driveway, there was a drawing power that would cause them to rise out of their chair and go down to the end of the drive and engage that person in relationship. But then it also came to be known as the concrete provision, maybe a loaf of bread or, or you know, some food that they would bring down and they would give that person at the end of the drive. They'd say, here, here's some grace to meet your need. In American Christianity, we usually think of it God, as just God's pity towards us. Well, God's grace, he overlooks our sin. No, he has compassion towards us and then he brings the grace of God to teach us to say no to evil. He gives us the ability to overcome sin. He meets our need. And all of that is entailed in that, that idea of grace. And it's that third component that you and I really need to get a hold of. Because it's that third component that we cooperate with, that we engage heaven with, and that we use the grace of God like Moses did. And he said, God, if I have found grace with you, if I have found favor, then Lord, I'm, I'm leveraging that. I'm asking for more. I'm asking you to visit the people. One of the ways in which you can kickstart the third part of grace is through the fourth part of grace. There was a fourth dimension that grace took on in the Greek language that over time evolved and it also became, charis was not just the bread received and the compassion within the guy that's giving the bread, but it also took on the meaning of the gratitude of the recipient. The homeless guy got some bread he ate the grace, and then he said, thank you. There was an affection and a gratitude that bubbled up in his heart, and as he expressed it, that expression was known as grace. And we still use it that way today. We sit around the table, and usually we'll say, let's pray over the meal, but the old timers used to say, let us say grace. And so, by expressing the grace back to God, we actually open the heavens for more grace. Because God gives grace to the humble and praise itself is a sign of humility because it says, I can't take credit for this. I am so grateful for all you've done. And it really uh, opens up the cycle, the grace that we receive from God, grace in his heart, his feelings towards us, his movement towards us, and his provision to us is then sent back to him in the form of praise. That's why, you know, we, we talk about the charismatic gifts, the grace gifts. 
often we'll see those begin to function in what environment? In an environment of praise. Because what we're doing is we're literally sending back to him what he sent to us. Sometimes we've received so much, but the pipe is blocked by our lack of gratitude. We can't receive anymore because we're not sending it back on. And so if we can learn to re-release it to God, what we've received as a gift, we send back to him in praise, it makes room for more, and it actually creates an environment where the grace of God begins to flow. And that's precisely why often the gifts of the Spirit will begin to operate in, a, in an environment of corporate praise. And it doesn't have to be 300 people in a room. It can be three people in a room. But as we worship him, all of a sudden those grace gifts begin to bubble up. And so it's important for us to understand that this idea of favor is grace. It's the grace of God upon us to cause us to stand out and to cause a partnership to be desired by others, including God. But we can do certain things to cultivate that heart of grace. We can recognize in humility, God, I have nothing but what you give me. And as I cultivate that in worship, as I walk in that humility, God gives grace to the humble. He begins to release greater grace when we express that humility in the form of praise and worship. And God's grace then comes upon us. And then we begin to learn not just to use that grace to stand, send back to him in gratitude and worship, but we mix that gratitude and worship with intercession and requests. And like Moses and Abraham, Abraham prayed for an entire city and God said, I would spare an entire city for 10 believers. Moses spared an entire nation through intercession. But you see this phrase arising again and again. God, if I have found favor with you, if I have found favor with you, there was something they intuitively understood that you and I need to understand. That your position of grace with God, that the favor of God on your life, that the favor that you've attracted from heaven that you can leverage that for your loved ones and you can leverage that for an entire nation. And God will operate in relationship with others based on his relationship with you. You can literally take your favor, this relationship that you've cultivated with God, the blessings that you've cultivated with God, and you can take that and step in and shield someone else that deserves judgment, and you can shield them and take your favor and say, God, if I have found favor with you, Lord, I'm asking, will you move on their life? Lord, Jesus suffered when I couldn't. Jesus went to the cross in my stead when I couldn't die for my own sins. So I've stepped into what he purchased, and now, Lord, I'm stepping in as an intercessor like Jesus did. And I'm repenting for them when they wouldn't repent. And I'm asking, God, would you put the favor that is on me on them, and will you relate with them through your relationship with me? 
That's what Moses was doing. That's what Abraham was doing. So when the angel shows up to Mary and he says, you fear not, you who are highly favored, she was troubled and wondered what this meant. But there was a history behind this idea of somebody carrying favor and leveraging it for the rest of the nation. And God had found a young woman that he could put his seed in and she would carry the, the, the Christ child into the world. Redemption began with one teenage girl that had found favor she didn't even understand she carried. And this whole history began to turn on that event. Then we see on the, the Christmas night when the angels showed up and they began to sing. We talked about it last week. And, and again, I, I said last week, but I want to encourage you, go home and read that passage because you can't really understand what's happening in that passage unless you understand the angels are speaking from an angelic heavenly perspective. They're dropping in and they're saying, listen, we have been watching the human race rebel against our creator for thousands of years. We watched some of our own angels rebel against him and we've watched the damage that created. But we've also watched the angelic activity going on in these recent days. And we watched an angelic visitation upon this, this young virgin woman. And we saw that she began to carry the child. The glory of heaven took on an embryonic form in her womb. And so they burst upon these angels and began to make this announcement. And this is what they said. They said, glory to God in the highest. What they're saying is, in the realm that we've been living in, in the highest heavens, glory. And then they say this, but on earth, they're speaking to the, the shepherds. They're saying, listen guys, where we just came from, it's glorious. Glory to God for what he's doing. But we got news for you. On earth, your realm, on this night, we have good news of great joy. For unto you has been born this day a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And so on earth, peace towards men on whom his favor rests. They're saying, listen, God has released his favor on humanity. All the human race now has access to the favor of God. In the Old Testament, we see these giants, Abraham, the father of faith. We see Moses, who was, this guy walked with God unlike any other man that I can find in scripture. We have David, who's, even after he's dead, not only does Solomon try to leverage David's relationship with God, God's saying, for the sake of David, thousands of years later, for the sake of David, I'm gonna do this thing. Because he was still so moved by David's heart. David being a man after God's own heart. We see these giants, but in the New Testament, there's an invitation. On earth, peace and goodwill towards men. It's accessible to all of us. I love the word that's used by the angel there. I'll, I'll butcher it. I don't know Greek. I just have Greek dictionaries. It looks like, it's spelled this, E-U-O-D-O-K-I-A, something like, I think it's euthdokia. It looks like eudokia, euthdokia. 
and what it means. It, it's also reiterated in Ephesians chapter 1 where it says that God for his good pleasure hath decided to bless us. It's the same word that all those words sum up that word. And it's a compound word, and it really is pregnant with meaning. It, it has the idea of a stubborn, a, 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 something God has chosen, and he's going to stubbornly pursue it. There is nothing going to deter him from what he's decided. But it also includes the motivation. He's going to do it simply because it makes him happy to do so. All of that is in that euthdokia. God is going to stubbornly pursue something. Nothing's going to keep him from it. And he's going to do so simply because it pleases him to do. It's it, in the, uh, I want to say it's in the King James Version, Ephesians chapter 1. It's translated good pleasure. It makes him happy to do so. God is stubbornly pursuing mankind because it makes him happy to do so. God wants to extend his favor to all men. So the angels understood what was going on that night. When Jesus was born, we need to understand what, what Jesus did at the cross began in the manger. God was out to reconcile man to himself. What we said he told Noah, I want to wash my hands of humanity. God eternally committed himself to mankind when he became a man. You know the New Testament preaches that Jesus didn't merely become a man for 33 years. He's still a man. Second Timothy says there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. This is long after his resurrection and ascension. So Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Matter of fact, we see him in the book of Revelation with flesh and bone, no blood, because he poured that out, but flesh and bone. When Jesus became man, he eternally wedded himself to the human race. He is eternally a man. It wasn't some earth suit he zipped on for 33 years and then dropped it to go back to the glory of what he had before. He became one of us. So never again could God say, I'm going to wash my hand of the human race because he would have to wash his hands of himself. He became a man. He became one of us. And so never again could God judge humanity and wash his hands of man. He had one, and that's all he needed. He had one handle by which he could grip mankind, and now he's changing history, one redeemed life at a time. I've talked about this book before, but I've got to. We'll close with this. Don Richardson, he was a missiologist, brilliant guy. He wrote some fascinating books, uh, was a linguist and a missiologist, I believe he was a missionary in, I want to say it was in a place in India, but don't quote me on that. You can look it up. He wrote a book, Eternity in Their Hearts, which is a fascinating book where he talks about how God's, uh, God not only created a gospel for the world, 
but a world for the gospel. And embedded in ancient cultures are springboards into the gospel. It's a fascinating book, and he talks about how again and again down through history, when missionaries would arrive and begin to preach, they would find that a portion of the gospel was already embedded in their culture. He wrote another book called The Peace Child, and it was the story of one such culture that he himself was a missionary to. And in this story, he packed up his family, and he went and lived among these this, this tribe, and they were cannibals. They were some brutal people. And so he took his family. They lived in tree huts. And so he, he had his own tree fort. You know, it'd be kind of cool to be a missionary kid and live in a tree fort. Uh, what was not cool is that the highest, uh, the thing that this culture respected the most was when someone betrays another person after securing their trust. Yeah, pretty twisted. So when he preached the gospel to them, he told them about Jesus and he told them about Judas and Judas was their hero and Jesus was the laughing stock. The one in that narrative that they would most greatly respect was Judas because Judas was able to get in on the inside, gain their trust only to turn around and have Jesus killed. Matter of fact, what they would do, there was this, they, with, with warring tribes, the person that was really respected, they would befriend someone from another tribe. And they would cultivate that friendship over months and even years. And they would do things as families together and go out and hunt together. And once the, that, tribe, that tribesman was sure that he had won the trust of this other guy, he would invite his other fellow warriors from his own tribe together and they would hide in the tree hut. And they would hide behind things and he would invite the guy over and they would be sitting around eating and all of a sudden, he would, at, at, at a word, everyone would jump out with their spears and they would relish in the horror on his eyes before they slew him and they ate him. And then the guy that was the friend would be the hero. Of course, Don Richardson, under, as he saw this kind of play out, he, he thought two things. Number one, these people are irredeemable. They are so far gone, even God can't reach them. And I don't want to be lunch, so we're leaving. So he was in the midst of packing his family up when he heard a commotion down in the village. He looked down in the village clearing. There was some people he recognized as an envoy from another tribe. And they were ran into the, into the, uh, the clearing there. And the, the heads of the tribe that he was amongst was all excited. And they were talking very loudly. And, and all of a sudden he saw this little baby transferred to the, the tribal chief. And the, he held the baby up. And there was all this yelling and dancing. And he could tell it was celebration. And he's like, what is going on? And so he climbed down the tree and he said, what's going on, guys? And what, what is this? And they said, oh, this is the greatest thing that can happen. This, we had, we've just experienced the ceremony of the peace child. We will have peace with this warring tribe. And he said, what do you mean? What they've done is they've gifted us one of their own children. They took one of their babies and they gave it to us. We're going to raise it as our own. They have, they have literally given it to us. Now they have become one of us and we are one of them. We'll never war again. And Don Richardson, being a good missionary, if it was a cartoon, a little light bulb went over and said, boop. And he said, well, what would happen if I killed the peace child? And they were horrified. They said, 
It is unthinkable to do something like that to so great a gift. Nobody would ever, that, that is unthinkable. And of course, he used that as a springboard into the gospel. And he said, you need to understand, God's son, Jesus, is the peace child. And Judas killed the peace child. But it was God's plan to kill the peace child to reconcile us because earth has been at war with heaven. And much of the, that, that entire tribe got saved. When Jesus took on human flesh, he became one of us. God stubbornly pursued it simply because it made him happy. And now the favor of God is open to all of us. I want to encourage you. Respond to the grace of God that's already on your life. There are things you can do to posture your life to grow in favor with both God and man. The grace of God can come on you in greater measures. And you can learn to leverage that favor for your loved ones. That was God's intention from the beginning. What did he tell Father Abraham? I will bless you so you can be a blessing. God will put favor on us and we can leverage that favor in intercession for others. We can live our life that God will actually visit other people because of his friendship with you. And that is biblical. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, as we go into this Christmas week, Father, we ask that you would help us to be cognizant of your great sacrifice, not just on the cross, but on taking on the limitations of human flesh. And Jesus, we thank you that you are our fellow man. That you've been through everything we've been through. You've been tempted in every way like as us. Living in the frailties of human flesh. And you conquered sin so that we could step into the favor of God. Lord, we thank you for it. I'm gonna ask that every head be bowed. If you're here this morning and you're saying, man, I, I, wanna, I wanna walk in the favor of God and I've not been walking with him. I, want, I wanna get right with the Lord. It may be something you did before and you've, you feel like you've wandered and you're saying, I wanna recommit. It might be something you've never done before, but you're saying, I want to walk with God. I want to make a commitment this morning. I want to posture my heart to receive the grace of God. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand real quick here. I want to pray with you. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Father, I thank you for these hands that are raised this morning. Lord, I ask that you would minister to them. I want to encourage you, just, just ask them right now. The grace of God is received as grace. It is his compassion towards us. We're the homeless guy at the end of the drive. And he wants to give you his grace. He's going to give you provision. He's going to give you the bread of life to empower you to live the life you need to live. And so, Lord, I thank you for each of these, Lord. Just ask him right now. And Lord, we thank you for newness of life, Lord. Reveal yourself, Jesus. And now, Lord, as we go, I pray that you would help us to walk in the, the spirit of that 
throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.